Balancing Death Kirk is a weekly KeyForge podcast focused on competitive play. The podcast is hosted by Kita Mode and Kodamarin. The show is here for listeners to gain a better understanding of how to evaluate decks, how to evaluate their own board position, and how to anticipate opponents' decisions. Without further ado, here's this week's episode. Welcome to another episode of Balancing Death Kirk. I am Kira Mode and I'm here with Kodamarin. How's it going? And today we're going to be doing Bouncing Death Quark Abridged. The intention of this episode is we're going to highlight the most important topics that we've gone through in the history of the show. Also reference the episodes later on in the in the episode, but this is meant to be like, if you're new to Bouncing Death Quark, you have no idea where to start, this is the first episode you want to be on. So the first thing to know about Bouncing Death Quark is our goal is to make you a better player. We've talked a lot about a lot of things and created a lot of terminology throughout our, the course of this podcast. And we're going to be bringing a lot of that up, re-explaining it, and kind of introducing how that applies to the episodes that they were introduced in and how they can apply to Keyforge in the future as new cards come out, as new strategies develop. How do these, uh, how do these concepts stay evergreen for the future? So the very first topic we need to talk about, this is probably the most defining topic of our entire show is this concept we call cards plus board. So in um, in one of our very first episodes, it's a card drop where we just talk about like, how do you draw more cards in this game? And the way that you draw more cards is by playing more cards. So in general, the most efficient play by and large on any given turn is gonna be, you take all the cards in your hand plus all the cards on your board of a certain color and whichever color has the most, you go with that. Yeah, we theorized way back, and I think that this really holds true, that if you had a, a, a robot or just an AI play nothing but cards plus board with any given deck, they're going to outperform a lot of, uh, a lot of other players just on efficiency alone. Mm-hmm. The ability to play cards, get as much value as you can on any given turn, and then draw more cards is fundamental to Keyforge. It's one of the few games that we have uh, where you can't play all of your cards in a given turn. So counting cards in your hand plus cards in your board and doing whatever is the most is almost by default going to be the most efficient strategy for the majority of your turns. And another part of this efficiency is that you use every single card, right? If there's a creature on the board, it is either reaping or it is fighting. If you have a card in your hand, it is either getting played or it's getting discarded. We're not holding cards in this whole thing, right? You are using the maximum amount of things that you can do. Because remember, even if you play, even if you just discard a card, that's drawing you a card, right? Like, like if I discard a card, it draws me an extra card at the end of my turn. That is something, right? It's not nothing. Like you're not just throwing it away. And that's something that's really hard for new players to understand. And, and it's why we wanted at the very, like very early onset of this game or, or the show, we wanted to explain that that is still a useful thing. Later on in the show, in, in, in future episodes, we end up talking about when is it okay to hold a card? When is it, what does it feel like to hold a card? It actually chains you for two or three more turns. Mm-hmm. And by the nature of, oh, this card might be situational, I should play it later, has a huge opportunity cost to actually holding it because you may end up holding it for two, three, four turns. You go back and watch the tape and, oh, I guess those four extra cards could have won me the game in the long run. That's why Cards Plus Board is such a an important core fundamental uh, strategy in Keyforge, where if you don't know what to do, just count cards plus board. Yeah, and here's the thing. If you look at our episode numbers, the card draw episode is our second episode in the entire series. The holding cards episode is our 12th episode. There's a reason why there's that gap. That gap exists because 
Holding cards is a very situational thing, and most players, when they start, they just want to hold every single card that has words, right? Like, it, like no one ever likes discarding cards, and it's it's much easier to com- to show people or to convince someone to hold the card than it is to convince them to throw it away, and and that is like why that card so bored. We want to come out of the gate with it and say like, look, you just gotta play all your cards. Like, if it doesn't, like if your board wipe isn't good now, too bad. Throw it away. It's not useful. Keep the chains moving. Right, like, like let let's let's get let's get more and more value over the course of our deck because every card in your deck does something, and you want to make sure you use more cards than your opponent uses. This obviously ends up having a little bit of nuance when you start looking at the words of cards, things that double reap, things that archive, mm-hmm. things that do other stuff. Yeah. But the idea that you should be streaming through your deck as quickly as possible is the first thing you should know about KeyForge as as far as a strategic competitive game. Um, the second concept that we talk about is this hierarchy, this pyramid of how to win a game. Uh, mm-hmm. Kirma, how, how does this pyramid work? So at the base of the pyramid, you have the delta. So uh, well, we'll explain the delta in a little bit, but the, the, the delta is your base of the pyramid. The center of the pyramid is amber control. And then the top of the pyramid is big plays. And the reason we came up with the pyramid was to understand that you need this hierarchy, right? Like it's really easy to look at a deck that has a lot of big plays and think this is incredible but if you don't have the delta and you don't have the amber control it doesn't matter right like you have to have these in order otherwise you're just going to lose and there's certain decks that have mountains and mountains of amber control and it looks incredible and then you look at their delta and it's non-existent and if you can't build a delta it doesn't matter okay so what so what is the delta this is a concept that has kind of taken on its own its own uh identity over the course of our episodes and i think it's a really important thing to understand with keyforge it's the idea that my reap ability my ability to gain amber is bigger than yours the mm-hmm. change in amber that i can have per turn the speed of my amber growth is bigger usually this looks like a board state if i have five creatures they're all the same house you have two 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 hey you've got more creatures than me you have six guys but you can only reap two times a turn I've got a bigger delta. Mine is five, mm-hmm. yours is two. On board alone, I am winning, even though I've got fewer guys. And, and that's a, an important thing with Keyforge. You can only use so many of your guys per turn. Going back to cards plus board, the way that number gets bigger than six is by having a bigger delta, by having more cards on board, right? Mm-hmm. If I can have five cards on board and I've got three and three of my other two houses in my hand, Cards plus board says to use my board. That's the most efficient play, just without looking at card text. And having that number be bigger than your opponent's influences a ton of other decisions. Should I be reaping? Should I be fighting your delta down to meet mine? Can I double reap? Does my delta get a bonus thing because I've got a a double reaper on the board? These are things to look at, and the most basic way to win a game of Keyforge is just to have a bigger delta. Get more amber than your opponent and have a better infrastructure. Yeah, and there's also, you can do this through your deck construction too. There's a type of deck in Keyforge called Racing Decks, which the way Racing Decks work is they don't have a board. They just play cards from their hand that have a bunch of bonus amber, and they gain amber that way. So that, that's like another way to do it, but ultimately, you need to have some sort of base of operations, right? You need to have a deck, and you say, okay, can this deck generate amber faster than my opponent over a certain predetermined number of rounds? Right? Maybe it means you build a board, and once you have a board, you reap a million times. Maybe it means you have a bunch of amber from hand. But you have to have some sort of proactive way to get the amber, and that's the base of your deck, the delta. 
and looking at your deck, maybe you have a deck with 15 creatures, but there's five from each house. Oh no, that's you're only going to get a board of five at the most. It's kind of rough for your delta. Maybe you've got a deck of 15 creatures, but you have eight and six and one. Wow, mm-hmm. maybe I'll get a board of eight creatures, and then the, the house with one creature uh, can do other things. That's that's another topic. We'll get to that in a second. But but back to this hierarchy. The bottom is the delta. The mm-hmm. next step, so that's how you go fast. The next step is amber control. This is how mm-hmm. you make your opponent go slow. The, the, the one thing that, uh, the best thing you can do is you can win the game. The second best thing you can do is not lose the game, right? Yep. Yeah, so a, a big thing that I noticed when I very like when I started Keyforge was games just seem to be won and lost on whether you can stall someone for a turn, right? Because there, there hits a point of the game where if the decks are very even and they both have two keys and like four amber, it's just gonna come down to like, can I keep you off of six three turns in a row? And if the answer is yes, then I'm gonna win because like th- think about it this way: let's say you have a deck that has no way to prevent me from getting amber right so like if i just make 18 amber i just win and let's say i have a deck where i have two ways to prevent you right like i have two miasmas in my deck that's my only amber control what's going to happen is the only way for you to win that game against me is if you are two turns ahead of me that's the only way you can win because if we are even like if we are both going to get to 18 amber on turn seven or eight or nine or whatever like if we're both going to get there at the same time if i have a miasma and you don't I always win, right? You have to be there multiple turns ahead of me. And that's where the key control comes in, where now obviously if my deck's way better than yours, like if my delta blows your delta out of the water and I'm six turns ahead of you, there's really no amount of amber control that's ever going to bail you out there. But if our decks are relatively close, like if if the speed at which our decks get to three keys is within a turn or two, or maybe three turns, then whoever has more amber control is going to win that game. This idea of these decks being close is very well embodied in a sealed environment. You don't mm-hmm. have the perfect decks, and a lot of the times you'll have decks with some number of creatures. Okay, I've got 18 creatures in this deck, whatever. I've got 9, 10 pips on all of my decks. At that point, they're all more or less equivalent until you look at niche combos in there. But that's when you start looking at, okay, my delta's fine. It's not garbage. How do mm-hmm. I get a better which of these decks is better okay everyone says what's the next best amber control decks are very often decided uh, are they good or not based on you know does it have amber control sets are are uh, entire houses are argued this is a really bad house because it's amber control doesn't show up in the right places um that that idea of being one turn faster is really important because maybe that one turn faster was on turn one and that matters because on turn six, you're already pushing for the win- for the end game. Maybe it's less important. Maybe you've only got one or two stops and it was a slow, grindy game. Hey, you know what that means? That means the delta was more important anyway, right? Yep. But okay, let's say that you're in this situation. Uh, Kieran Wood's got a much faster deck than me. Um, I'm the slower, grindier deck. His delta is just faster because he's playing cards from hand. He's reaping from board. How can I win the game even without the right amber control? Big plays. It's at the top of the pyramid. It is... The, the exciting moments in Keyforge. This is when you you have this uh, 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 too much to protect in a nerve blast. And instead of letting it hit for two, this game, it hits for six. You steal yep. six, you steal another one, and suddenly the game totally swings in your favor because all of that work that your opponent did didn't go anywhere. Or conversely, you hit some sort of giant combo, some sort of infinite loop that mm-hmm. gets you 18 amber in one turn. Can your opponent match it with the big play? 
Can they match it with enough amber control? Probably not regular amber control. It's got to be some sort of big situational amber control. That's why big plays are important in this game. Yeah. They're exciting. It could also just be a, it could just be a board wipe, right? It, it could be something as simple as your opponent's up nine creatures at two, and you play gateway to dis, and now it's zero zero. You know, so the the big thing about big plays to understand is that it's very easy to get excited about big plays. I get excited about big but plays. But the thing about them is, if you don't have the delta and you don't have the amber control, they don't matter, right? Like like if if your deck can only win via big plays. And then what's going to happen is you only win when you have the big play. And, like, the big plays, by their nature, are not going to be consistent. So you end up with this boomer bust deck where, like, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Ideally, you have the big plays on top of the other stuff where, if like, if our decks are close already, we have similar deltas, similar amber control. But, like, I have a board wipe that neutralizes your early advantage. Or maybe um, I have, like, this big amber play, like, like what Amber mentioned, like I have a too much to protect where you got a little bit of a lead and I just completely flip that lead on you or maybe like early days of bait switch or something like that. Like like if you can turn the tables on somebody and then you get that lead, if you're even everywhere else, that can propel you to victory. And and that's like a, a that's the top of the pyramid. Like it's not the thing that you hang the entire deck on, but it's like once you have the other pieces, you want that. And a lot of games can be lost on a big play that never happened. I've, mm-hmm. I've casted a number of games where someone holds a too much to protect from turn one, doesn't play it for the cards plus board because, hey, that's where we started with all this, you know, mm-hmm. and they're going for the big play, never really happens, or if it does, it's too late, right? You lose the game because, oh, I guess I didn't get my most efficiency. I didn't, I didn't pay enough attention to my delta. I was looking too much at the, at the amber control and at the big plays that I, I lost sight of actually winning the game for myself. Yeah, and, and talking about the delta is an important thing here. Usually when players, when they are holding out for a big play, it's because they feel they need to hold out for a big play, or they're just bad at the game. But oftentimes, like if you feel like you need to hold out for the big play, and that's your only out to winning, that signifies a flaw in the rest of your deck. Like Ideally, the big plays come on top of everything. It's not like, oh, I have to get this or I lose. That's when you lose a lot of games. The interesting thing is when you talk about a combo deck. Right, I know that you mm-hmm. have a deck with a very powerful lock, and mm-hmm. it, it involves a Witch of the Eye that's a Maverick and a, and a, yep. a Control of the Weak. Very strong. But one of the reasons that deck is so strong is it can play towards that combo, or you can just win because you have a very strong Mars House. Sometimes you can just reap a bunch, and if your opponent doesn't pay attention to that, you can have a higher delta. You can play the game normally and win that way. Yeah, like I have a I have a, I have a couple combo decks that I've that I've managed to acquire, and. With all of them, I, I feel like the difference between whether or not they're viable or not comes down to, like, can it win without the combo? Because, like, people are going to have ways to respond to your combo. You need to have some other out to victory. Otherwise, you're just hanging on this, like, on this thread of this one thing happening where, like, a simple mind barb can kill you. And then there's even that perception of, oh, this deck is so good it can't be beat. Oh, I just drew badly this game. Oh, they were on the bottom of my deck. That's mm-hmm. a pet peeve of mine. Oh, it was on the bottom of my deck. Well, that's because you weren't playing towards cards plus board. You were holding the combo pieces. You didn't have mm-hmm. the other option. You couldn't adjust your own strategy to make it work. You were looking too much at the big play and ignoring your, your the delta on the bottom of your board. Okay, so on to the next topic, which is related to the hierarchy of winning. We created this concept called house rules. So the idea behind house rules is that there's three rough house rules. House rule type number one is main house, house rule type number two is support house, and house rule type number three is burst house. 
So what what is a house rule? The idea is if I'm looking at my deck, or maybe I'm looking at a, a, a pile of cards, a, a, a card pool of a set, what do these cards want to do? Um, if I've got a main house, if I've got a deck that has eight creatures in one house, I've got, let's say, a Brobner house, and I've got nine creatures in that house, well, that deck's going to build a pretty big delta over some point of time, right? We call mm-hmm. that a main house. The way that we define a main house is there is if there is a house in your deck that you could get to a point where you would call it without drawing any cards or playing any cards from hand. It, basically, cards plus board is mm-hmm. going to be greater than six or something like that. We call it a main house. Your, yeah. your deck could set up a situation where that house is entirely self-sufficient and you win on that alone. A, a very easy way to illustrate this is let's say you have a Brobner house with 10 Brobner creatures. It's not that hard to envision a scenario where you just end up with seven Brobnar creatures on the board, and they're all gigantic, your opponent can't kill them, and you're like, I don't even care if I have any Brobnar cards in my hand, I'm just going to call Brobnar and reap for seven every turn until you stop me. Yeah, and we think that Brobnar is a strong, uh, is, a, is a faction, is a, cl- is a house with, that can make a strong main house, because yep. they have these big bulk, bulky guys. A Logos house could have, you know, eight to ten guys in it, but they don't make as strong of a main house because they'll die. They don't have innate protection. Yeah. Their big numbers aren't big enough. For whatever reason, Logos in your deck could look like a main house, but in the card pool may not be best suited as a main house. So, exactly. So if you were in a main house, what are the other options? You could be a burst house. This is kind of the opposite. The idea behind a burst house is you want to play it once every now and again while your other two houses are doing most of the work. This is a great shadows house, a thing that makes a bunch of amber. You want to hold these cards, these steel cards, until just the right moment. You accumulate four or five of them. Your board gets wiped. Suddenly, boom, you play four steel cards out of shadows and another creature. Now you're drawing five cards. Um, you have this big burst of potential because you were doing your main house thing, and then that got interrupted. Let's do my burst house when it's the right time to do it. Yeah, your burst house typically has your most situational cards. Right? They're, they're the cards that you can't just spam out. Like So main houses are really easy to spam out. They typically have a lot of long-term board effects that are consistent that are like the backbone of your deck. But your burst house are like, this is where you want your big play. So when you think about like the hierarchy of winning, you typically want your delta to be drawing from your main house and you want your big plays to be drawing from your burst house. And that that's a that that's a sort of like symbiotic relationship where like the better your main house is, the longer you're going to be able to sit on burst cards in your hand, which means your burst cards are more likely to hit in optimal situations. Um, now now let's talk about the last house. And and the support house is probably the hardest pe- one for uh, people to conceptualize. I think the best way to think about a, a say a support house is set one dis. Because what you want out of your support house is I think of it as support to the main house, right? So typically what you want out of a support house are cards that you don't want to call repeatedly, right? Like So cards are like passive effects, cards that have like um, effects that bolster your other cards. And cards that like give you amber control are typically incredible support cards. Because what you want to have is like, you, so let's say you have this big shadows play, right? I, I have like a massive too much to protect play. If your opponent gets to seven, you're in this awkward spot where it's like, am I going to too much to protect for one? That doesn't feel great. But if you have a charrette, that's incredible because you're like, okay, you know what? Charette gets him off a check. 
I'll let them build more amber, and I can still hold off. But like you know, my obviously my seven Brobner creatures aren't going to have much amber control. Odds are, whatever your main house is is going to be lacking in amber control. So your support house will typically buoy that until your burst house can put in work, and then also your support house might be like something like Sanctum, where it's like, hey, I got um, a guy that gives all my dude shields, makes them harder to kill. You know, so that way my burst, my main house can keep putting in work. The way you look at a support house often comes out of the tools from that house. If I have a Logos house, yes, it's going to have a lot of archive cards, a lot of draw cards. It's going mm-hmm. to do a lot of deck smoothing, a lot of uh, really help the board texture and my hand texture be better for those big burst plays or those main house plays. Um, it's more so just kind of what's missing. Maybe your deck has no removal, so you really hope that that third house that you call every now and then is a uh, disc with some hand of disc, some removal tools, maybe a uh, nature's call and some, uh, some, some removal tools from Untamed. And really, this, the third house is, is just kind of where you're going to fill in all the gaps. In a perfect deck, you might want to have one main, one burst, one support house. But mm-hmm. as Keyforge is not a, uh, a, it's a procedurally generated game, uh, that's not the case. People will say, I think this is my main house, and this is my burst house, and this is my support house. But really, your deck could have three burst houses. Your deck could have two main houses and really no big burst house, and you're happy going between all three of them. Maybe you've Mm -hmm. got a bad deck, right? Maybe it just doesn't have anything that's clearly defined. It doesn't have to fall into any of these. It's just more of a way to contextualize the cards and the tools that you might have available to you. Yeah, different decks want different structures, right? So like... When we came up with these three, that's for your more or less conventional decks. But let's say you're playing a racing deck, you probably just want two burst support, two burst houses and one support house. If you're playing like a heavy control deck, you probably want two main houses and a support house. You want like like if your deck's heavy control, you don't want any situational cards. You just want nothing but consistency. And and that's where like the different structures matter. And and again, like Kodamri mentioned, with the bad decks, there are decks where you look at the three houses and you're like, this lineup is not good in any of the three roles it's just bad and this is this kind of this idea of house roles takes on a different um a, a different meaning in a in a constructed game versus a sealed game if i'm playing a constructed game and i sit against my opponent i look at their deck and i go oh look at that sanctum house it's got nine creatures in it i'm going to mm-hmm. identify that as a main house and say i'm going to target their sanctum guys because their mars board is never actually going to get that big despite mm-hmm. mars potentially having a good main house in a sealed environment when I sit down to look at my decks, I'm trying to choose one. I've never seen that deck before. I use house rolls to identify, oh, this deck actually has a clear main support and burst house. Maybe it'll flow better than the other two uh, than I expect it to, right? It may yeah. not have all the best cards in it, but it has the right structure. Maybe it'll work a little bit better. It's a good way to identify decks if you're still looking at them for the first time. Exactly. And uh, so... We do house rolls that, that, like, the very first episode where we have them, it's going to be episode 13, and then we do house rolls for the first seven houses in the game. Um, we, we opted not to do it for AOA nor um, Worlds Collide, simply because at some point, you, you either get it or you don't. And, like, the intention isn't to say that Shadows is always a burst house. The intention was to say, okay... There's Shadows is probably going to have more lineup combinations you get procedurally generated that are better as burst houses, but you can also have a Shadows main house and you can have Shadows support house. You just have to identify the cards in Shadows that work for each of those three houses. One of the things I love about the house rolls concept is it's a tool to understand either a deck 
okay, I've got this deck, it looks like a main house. Or you can expand it to an entire set of cards. Oh, mm -hmm. look at Brobnar and AOA. It has Grok as a common. Maybe that means that uh, if I find a deck with Groks, Brobnar will make a good support house, right? Yep. It is a way to look at a, a set of cards and say, do I want Untamed in my Worlds Collide deck? Maybe, maybe I don't. Is it going to look different than Coda? Probably, yeah, because it's a different set of cards, but why? How? We think that understanding it through the lens of house rules is a good way to understand a new set of cards for the indefinite future. Yeah, you, you can look at a pool of cards. So, like, let, let's say you're looking at the new dinosaur house, right? Saurians. Yeah, the Saurians. And you're like, okay, the Saurians, let's say they have um, a lot of cards that make sense as burst cards, for example, right? Then if you see a Saurian card that makes sense as a main house card, you'd look and say, this card looks great if it were in some other faction, but it's actually probably going to underperform because the chances that you get the cards necessary for this to work are very low. An example of this was in set one, uh, Doc Bookton was generally a really bad card in Logos. And the reason was that is like a premier main house card. Right, it's a card, you trigger every turn to reap and it draws you a card, makes it easier for you to set up your burst houses, makes it easier for you to keep pumping out gas for your main house. Like it makes sense in a main house, but logos just the their ability to create a twelve card lineup randomly that makes sense as a main house is very, very hard. So typically what you'd have in logos is they're most logos lineups are gonna be burst or support houses, in which case Stockbook doesn't really do anything. And that's what we're talking about. Like when you look at a new card pool, if you understand how house rules work, you'll be able to look at the card pool collectively for a house or for a faction and say, okay, what types of house rules are, are these guys going to be good at producing? And then from there, you can make good decisions on, on on whether you should play these types of decks or not and like how you should play them. That's that's a that's a really good example. I really like talking about Logos as a main house. How it happens sometimes, but it mm -hmm. doesn't quite work as well as a Sanctum main house. And house rolls is why. So that's the idea of house rolls. In these conventional decks, uh, how can we look at these cards? But through a different lens, right after we did house rolls, we ended that. And in episode 25, we introduced the concept of a racing deck in episode 14. Mm -hmm. But we talked about it in, I think, the best one in, in our finish lines episode of racing decks, which is number 25. Um... And the idea of a racing deck is it doesn't quite conform to these house rules. It kind of mm -hmm. just takes cards for, for, the, for the value printed on them. And often that's just the amber on, on their face. And the idea is to, to stream cards plus board without caring about your board. So yeah. we called it amber plus cards. If you, and, and we had a couple really good examples of where amber plus, amber plus cards gives you this different strategy with the same set of cards in your hand um, to play a deck like a racing deck. Racing decks, the, the racing deck series really introduced not only here's a deck that looks like a racing deck, what does it look like, how does it play, but how can you adjust your play to play in a racing mode? Yeah, so, so racing decks fundamentally are the biggest mistake Keyforge has ever made. And hopefully in future sets, they weed them out. But especially at the time we've recorded this, and presumably for the foreseeable future, they're going to exist, right? So you have to talk about it. You have to say, okay, how do racing decks interact differently or lack of interact, you know, to other decks? And how do you play them? How do you play against them? And typically the way you play against racing decks is often in the deck construction phase, right? It means like when we talk about the, the hierarchy of winning, right, the delta and the amber control, amber control takes a much bigger role 
in trying to build when you're in a racing meta. And so we, we made four episodes specifically on racing decks, but the one that we would point you to the, the most is episode 25, the finish line one, because that, that gives you the most overarching view on how to play these things correctly. And the idea behind that is, how can I get to the finish line? I'm looking at this mm-hmm. game as not a, a, a back and forth of boards, I'm looking to forge a key, no. I want 20 amber. It's really 18, but you'll lose a couple here and there. Yeah. How can I find a deck with which just gets me to 20 amber? And a lot of the ways to do that is you get a deck with 20 amber printed on it. That seems pretty good, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and something to note about racing decks is that you can think about racing decks from the standpoint of the pyramid, which is the delta, right? So like the delta is like, how can I gain more amber than my opponent over a certain amount of time? You, As a racing deck, you just want that time to be less. So you might say... Over the course of 20 turns, your deck's going to generate more amber than my deck because if I'm playing two or three cards a turn and they're just getting me like a pip, right, just like one amber, but like you're playing creatures on the board, over time, I'm going to be getting like three amber a turn and you're going to be getting like six amber a turn. But that doesn't matter if the game's already over. So if I can front load all of my delta, right, like if I just get all of my burst right out of the gate, then by the time that you stabilize, it won't matter because I already have two keys and three amber. And I'm just pushing for victory. And that's the right way to approach it. And you need to have, our rule of thumb was at least 20 cards with Amber, like bare minimum. And then on top of that, you still want to have some amount of Amber control, right? Because you still need to be able to beat opposing racing decks that, that are as that fast as That one more are. turn really matters. Exactly. And then uh, part of the Delta is you're still going to need some amount of control, right? Like you don't want people's boards to run away from you particularly if they have things like grabber jammers that can like passively make your amber cost more and then you still want some big plays too right so like it still is a you can still think about it within the realm of um the pyramid but they they do still operate differently enough that they warranted their own set of episodes to talk about one of my favorite part of this four episode series is we talk about um first how to identify a racing deck what do you want in a racing deck 20 amber pips but then we go a little bit deeper and say, okay, how can I play my deck as a racing deck? There's a lot mm-hmm. of playstyle choices you can make. Um, this is very exemplified well in Magic, where uh, one deck will be, oh, I'm going to play this deck as, a, as an aggro control one in this matchup, yep. but as a, as, a, as a slower one in this matchup. Some Keyforge decks really lie in the middle. You might just have a good deck with 18 pips on it, and if your yep. opponent is trying to play an Amber Rush game against you, you should slow down. You should capture their amber. You should build your delta and keep in control. But if your opponent's a better control deck than you, then you take your 18 amber pips and you go to the bank. You just try to rush and race. And those episodes really talked about how you can play the same hand differently to both of those effects. And I think that's what can really take a mediocre player to a good player when they can see those different lines and why why they change the outcome of the game. Yeah. And, so, and then we have one last topic we want to mention in the abridged episodes, which is reading Archon cards. So there's an entire sub-series that we have. We call them Kraken Packs. We did 10 of them in total. And there's an initial episode we did. It's episode uh, 5, and it's how to read an Archon card. So you can listen to that. But like, the main reason we did these Kraken Packs is that it's one thing to say how to read an Archon card, and it's another thing to see it. Right. So... The idea of how to read an Archon card is you look at, um, this was actually before we introduced House Rules. The idea was look at the number of creatures you have, look at the big plays you have. We, we looked at it through the lens of the hierarchy of winning. 
right? And one of the things mm -hmm. that we mentioned in there is the organization of an Archon card, which used to be an order of creatures and artifacts and it was all in order. Now it's kind of out the window, right? Now you kind of need mm -hmm. to know the card pool a little bit better. But the idea is of look how many creatures you have, look at how what your, your strategies of winning are, and then, I mean, hey, look at your house rolls is a great thing. Um, but what, what Kirma was getting at is the idea of uh, we, we did 10 of those and we didn't do 50 of them for a reason. Right? The idea is we look at this deck, we look at it under a time constraint as though we were doing it in a tournament, and we're getting our first impressions of it. Okay, what do we see? What big strategies are there? How would we play with this deck? How would we play against this deck? What are the things that we're looking for? Which houses should we target? Um, and the idea is if you're trying to be a better high-level player, you're at a tournament, you need to do this two-minute... Uh, actually, Yeti is very much enforcing this two-minute... Uh, time to look at an Archon card, how would you yep. look at an uh, Archon card in two minutes? And if you want to get better at that, maybe listen to these 10 Cracker Packs back-to-back -back and see how, not only how we look at these Archon cards, but how we how um, our analysis of Archon cards evolves over time. How they change for different sets. How they change for different houses in the decks. How they change, yeah. okay, we see a bad deck. How do we identify it's a bad deck? And then we'll talk about how would I win with the bad deck. Maybe we read a good deck. And we say, oh no, how would I beat this deck? What would I be afraid of? Well, it's got mm -hmm. three board wipes. I shouldn't play my board and I should just reap a little bit more aggressively. The idea yeah, of the Cracker Packs is that it's to give you an idea of the thought process of what goes through an experienced player's head when they see an interesting list. Yeah, and, and again, and this would be probably a more advanced topic to, to do, but like if you don't know how to read Archon cards, it is immensely valuable to just watch us do a bunch of them, right? Like, like you can make a little playlist for yourself in Spotify where you just cherry pick all the crack pack episodes, and then you know maybe have like your desktop next to it or something, and you can have the Archon card in front of you, and you can listen to us talk about what we see. Because when we do these, we do them semi live, right? Like, it, like obviously we're not live streaming, but we haven't seen it. We basically we click record, and then we open the pack, and then we just start talking, because we want to have that. I, that same experience is when you go into a tournament, right? You sit down, your opponent gives you the card, and you have two minutes. And you have to quickly analyze what you're looking at because you can't memorize every card. What you can do is you can see, okay, what are the key things I need to look for here? And if you just listen to us do it enough times, you'll see patterns in what we look for, and then that can translate to your game to be able to read Archon cards better yourself. And then if you want to take that even one step further, you can go to my, my, uh, uh, my YouTube channel at Codameron. Um, I've done a number of streams uh, with that same idea of these are experiments that we've done. And a lot of the times that when we either do a stream or we, uh, uh, mode and I, analyze, uh, uh, commentate a game, we'll look at the decks beforehand and we'll talk about them. And then sometimes we'll even look at them afterwards and talk about how they match up against each other. Um, mm -hmm. We think that reading an Archon card and understanding it is one of the most nuanced things and most high-level things to do in Keyforge, which is why we mm -hmm. kind of keep it at the end of this, and we kind of wanted to do it as an exercise as much as possible. The idea is that everyone's going to read it differently, and whoever can read it better and use it better and understand uh, the contents of the deck up against the randomness of drawing those cards in a particular order, whoever can come up with the best strategy from that is going to be at a huge advantage. Yeah. All right, so let's wrap up this episode. So over this, we, we, we covered five generalized topics, right? So the first one is cards plus board. You can find this in episode two. In the It's called Card Drawing Keyforge. The second we said about the pyramid and the hierarchy of winning. You can find that episode four. It's called Hierarchy of Winning, 
in Keyforge. Uh, the third topic we talked about was house rules. So house rules, our base episode is episode 13 called House Rules and Keyforge Decks Overview. Um, but there are an additional seven past that where we go over each of the initial seven houses of Keyforge. Uh, the fourth topic that we talked about was uh, Racing Decks. So Racing Deck has four episodes. The very first one we did was episode 14 called Racing Deck Infrastructure in Keyforge. We recommend that the first one you actually listen to is episode 25, and it's called Finish Lines for Racing Decks in Keyforge. And then lastly, we talked about reading Archon cards. So how to read, read an Archon card is um, episode five. It's titled How to Read an Archon Card in Keyforge. But then on top of that, we have 10 other episodes that they are listed as crack a pack and then the name of the deck and in each one of those crack a packs we have a link to the archon card so you can pull up the deck while you listen to the episode and you can bang all of those out so we have over 50 episodes that are that are published and will be evergreen we tried to keep them as timeless as possible and they cover a wide range of topics there's some on how to be a better card player i would listen to that one that's cure mode only it's number 46 one of my favorites um, there's mm-hmm. one on sealed play. That's number 38. If you want to be a better sealed player, listen, listen to number 38. Um, and really, there's some. There's a lot on tournament structures. There's a lot on uh, just playing and sometimes acquiring cards. We do a lot of banter sessions. The idea behind Bouncing Death Quark was always that we wanted to create a library of information for players to become better at Keyforge and better card players overall. Mm-hmm. Um, these five episodes and topics that we just went over in depth here are what we think are the most... Um, the 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 strongest things that we've created for Keyforge mm-hmm. and the easiest things to use to go from zero to very strong card player, right? Yep. We still use these concepts and we think about the game through these lenses. But a lot of the stuff that we've talked about, it's all valuable. It's all it's all there, and I think it's all a pretty good listen. So if you have the time and if you enjoy listening to Kira Mode and I talk, please go back and listen to the, the episodes that you feel are interesting. Right, they're not in any particular order, but they do build on each other, and they do talk about these concepts. And if you were to mm-hmm. listen to them, knowing about cards plus board would be very important. If you didn't, you might yeah. be a little lost. Yeah, there, there there is a scaffolding to these episodes where we will oftentimes reference previous episodes. But we do try to keep it evergreen. So yeah, um, this episode here, the Bouncing Death Quarker Bridge, it, it's designed for new players to understand what the show's about and how to direct them if they're not just going to go one to fifty. You know. But yeah, uh, if you like what you've seen and you like our episodes, tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Like, Let people know that this library of content is available for them to become better players. On top of that, uh, you can still contact us. Like, We're, we're still going to be in the community. We have um, social medias, Facebook and Twitter. We are at DeathQuark for either one of them. Through either of our social medias, you can find an invite to our Discord channel. In our Discord channel, that is the easiest way to contact us. Uh, Codameron will still be doing... Um, content on his own right like he still has his youtube channel where he will be doing some vault tour coverage he might do streams of himself playing he might review some decks so you can look up his youtube channel it's just code Amron on youtube and then lastly if you like our show enough you can always fly our colors so we have our own online store it is within the swag section of our discord channel in there you can find different merchandise that just has our logo so you can purchase whatever you want you can wear it at Vault Tours. You can wear it at the Vault War. You can wear it at the local store. It's another way to just promote the show and help people become better players at large for Keyforge. And if you want to say, hey, what episode should I start with? Start with this one. Like, let people know. Start with the Bouncing Death Quarker Bridge. It gives you, like, a very quick introduction into what this show is about, and it'll direct you to the right places. And then once they listen to enough episodes, they'll probably get hooked, and they'll just listen to everything. 
So tell your friends about the show, and we'll see you next time. And thank you, everyone, for all the support uh, that you've given us for over, over the course of these episodes. We hope to keep producing stuff for the community and being uh, important people at these tournaments. Come say hi to us. Thanks a bunch. Thank you.